2: This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes.
3: Animals like elephants and whales are made up of many more cells than a human or a mouse, and they live far longer.
0: Yet, they hardly ever get cancer, and the big question is why. If you actually look within mammals or animals more generally, if you just look at body size and cancer, you might expect larger organisms to get more cancer, right, because they have more cells. But that isn't the case. Plus, revolutions in
3: genetics and a magical gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for November 2015 with me Dr Katani brought to you in association with the Genetics Society online at genetics.org.uk In 1977 the biologist Richard Peto noticed an unusual paradox If we assume that the chances of an individual cell in the body turning into a cancer cell is the same across all species, then humans should get more cancers than mice, and even larger, longer-lived species, such as elephants and whales, should get many more than us. Yet this isn't the case. Whales and elephants hardly ever get cancer. So what's going on? According to the speakers at a recent meeting about PETO's paradox at the Institute of Cancer Research hosted by Professor Mel Greaves, to solve it, we need to take a wider look at cancer across species, including taking an evolutionary perspective, as Mel explained to me.
1: I, like many other people in the field, were very influenced by a paper published in 1976 by an American clinician called Peter Null, who made the argument that had been developing for a few years that tumours seem to evolve through genetic change and selection over time in patients. So I thought this was a complete paradigm shift or new perspective on cancer. It didn't mention Darwinism, it didn't mention ecosystems, so one could say it was a very simplistic view, but it struck me that this was an absolutely fascinating, interesting way to think about cancer. And since then, I've tried to take that perspective, my own work on leukaemia and cancer in general, to think about cancer as a problem in evolutionary biology, but evolution of cells.
3: It's almost like the idea of it being a, a rogue organism within the body that's sort of evolving and changing, or a population of rogue organisms.
1: When multicellularity was invented 600 million years ago, the deal was we've all got our different jobs to do, these different cell types, but we'll all work together for the common good, for, for the health and fitness of the individual. So you know, we've got all these metaphors, cancer cells, are individual cells, behaving almost as if they're a parasitic species. They're now selfish, they're ignoring the signals for restraint, and they're enjoying their lifestyle and their succulents at the expense of the whole organism. So they're a selfish type of cell, and in essence, they're a cellular parasite.
3: And in terms of a wider evolutionary perspective of humans as part of the branch of the massive tree of life, how does our cancer risk fit in compared to other organisms?
1: We don't have a terrific amount of data on cancer in wild animals. Uh, In zoos, we have some information, but insofar as that information exists, we seem to have vastly more cancer than other species.
3: Why do you think that is?
1: Well, my thought about that comes from the epidemiological observations that cancer rates appear to be low in people... Indigenous populations, are hunter gatherers. It looks as though the very high rates are relatively recent in human history, and we see high rates for different cancers in different countries, in different people. And it doesn't look as though it's primarily genetic because when populations move to another country as migrants, or when lifestyles change over time, it looks as though the high risk is very much related to lifestyle, to exotic lifestyle. So. You know, it's not too difficult to imagine um, humans compared with other species have rapidly evolved socially. We've recreated a completely artificial, unique ecosystems for ourselves. In our diet and our reproductive lifestyles, the way we interact with the sun and everything. Smoking is the obvious example. I don't know an animal that smokes. There probably aren't any. So we've recreated this artificial environment, which has many beneficial effects. That's why we've done it. Right? People like smoking, and people like eating a lot, and people like sitting in the sun, without thinking of the long-term consequences. So, I'm afraid we are seriously maladapted. Um, we have lots of cancer strains, as all animals do, that evolved over millions of years, but we've overwhelmed them with all um, this regulation of the body through um, the stress to tissues, through um, behaviour patterns that have evolved very, very rapidly.
3: Lots of people say that cancer is just a disease of our modern lifestyle, but given that Mm. at least some wild animals Mm. seem to be afflicted by Mm. cancer Mm. and that there have been sort of Mm. old specimens found, does it seem fair to say that we have always had cancer, but the rates are increasing?
1: I think cancer in one sense is intrinsic to the design of multicellular life because what happened in that deal 600 million years ago is that cells would... Um, organize themselves socially and with some form of restraint, but you still needed to allow certain cells to divide um, quite a lot. We call them stem cells. So that's a kind of contract there. So every time a stem cell divides, there's a risk DNA will mutate because DNA is sloppy. It does mutate, and if you didn't have mutation, you'd have no evolution. So you know there's always an intrinsic risk of cancer, which is why we have some readout of cancer. In almost all species, but you know, there's a balance between those risks and the evolved restraints that can recognise the problem and deal with it. So I think cancer is intrinsic to multicellular life. You know, it's one of the risks, but it's relatively modest or low. And humans have simply overwhelmed that and have tipped the balance in terms of risk versus restraint.
3: Where do you think we need to go next with bringing our understanding of evolution together with our understanding of cancer biology and cancer genetics? What are the big questions for you now?
1: Well, I want to have something that's the antithesis of the magic bullet because I don't like that idea. And the idea, I have a sort of analogy with um, signal lights. So um, the best thing would be if the problem is evolution, evolution of robust clones of parasitic-like cells, what are we going to do about it? So solution number one, there's plan A, B, and C. The red light is we stop it getting going before it gets started. So that's prevention. So you know probably two thirds or maybe up to 90% of cancers are potentially preventable, and we should be much more assiduous and active in trying to do that. So smoking, exposure to the sun, prophylactic vaccines for virus cancers, etc., etc we need to think very seriously about whether breast cancer is preventable or not. So prevention is the red light, stop it. Some cancers are not preventable, and yet with current knowledge, we should catch them early because we know from the evolutionary point of view, when they're less evolved and less diverse, they're more drug sensitive. So there should be, and there is, a major effort in early diagnosis because then either a surgeon can deal with it or radiotherapy or more simple simple drug combinations. So... When the diversity in the evolutionary pro- progression is limited, you stand a much better chance. So that's the red plus yellow light. Things are starting to go. But and the fact is that even if you're incredibly successful in all of that, about 15% of cancers are going to present out of the blue in a very malignant, advanced state. Pancreas does that. Brain tumors do that. Many ovarian cancers do that. So that's where we just need to have a reality check and say these are advanced highly diverse, weed-like parasitic species of cells, they're going to have drug resistance on board. How can we treat those? And that's where we're having a revolution in treatment, thinking about novel combinations of therapy using the immune system, use novel drugs, and that um, take advantage of um, understanding of the complexity of the system. So our argument is we look at the phylogenetic evolutionary tree of the cancer and say, well, this type of tree structure with all of these branches and this trunk What's the best route of attack? And what we say is, well, what you don't want to do is chop off a few branches, a few clones, because that'll achieve nothing. You want to track it at its root or at at its trunk. And there are ways ways that one might be able to do that. So, you know, there's a three-pronged approach, traffic light style, of prevention, early diagnosis, and more sophisticated combinatorial treatment.
3: Mel Greaves from the Institute of Cancer Research. Another scientist who's trying to solve Peto's paradox by taking an evolutionary view is Athena Actipus from Arizona State University. She's been looking in more depth at cancer rates across the animal
0: kingdom. I see cancer really as a fundamental problem for the evolution of multicellularity because in order to build a multicellular body the cells have to cooperate to inhibit the cell proliferation, control cell death, um, but also Distribute resources and divide labor and do all sorts of other things that you need to do in order to make a large body that can be effective. And really, cancer is sort of this fundamental breakdown of cooperation in a multicellular body. It's kind of cells going rogue and saying, I'm not going to be a brain cell or a skin cell, I'm just going to do my own thing. Yeah, you could sort of think of it in that way. Um, having a multicellular body work well means that the cells within it are following certain rules, and you know those rules are encoded genetically with... Um, tumor suppressor genes that are making sure cells aren't dividing out of control, making sure that cells are expressing the right genes for the tissues that they're in, and making sure that they're producing the right proteins. So all of those things break down in cancer, and what you get are really misbehaving cells, and um, the result of that is that you can get a malignant growth um, that can take over and you know eventually kill a patient if it's not treated properly.
3: Are cancer cells really kind of cheaters that are getting around the rules of the society of the body and and doing what they want?
0: Yeah so you can think about you know cancer cells as cheaters in the sense that you know in general, we can think of cheating as breaking some shared rules, right? You break some sh- shared rules that you have with a, a, you know, a group. And in cancer, the shared rules are being broken, and those shared rules are actually encoded in our DNA. they are you know, DNA repair mechanisms um, that are literally getting broken um, and allowing those cells to get around the rules, the, the shared rules that enabled multicellularity in the first place.
3: You're studying the links between cancer and evolution. What do we know about sort of where cancer's
0: come from and and where is it going and how do we fit in as humans to the, the rest of life? there's two different answers to that question. So, you know, one is the question of where does cancer come from um, for any given individual? And the answer is that cancer is a result of this sort of evolutionary process within the body, where the cells that are proliferating more quickly, the cells that are monopolizing the resources better, the cells that aren't dying when they have too much DNA damage, uh, they're increasing in frequency in the population. Um, And that means that what happens over the course of a lifetime is that within the body, selection actually favors cells that are neoplastic um, cells that are not behaving properly, um, unless the immune system is able to get them under control. So within an individual, cancer comes from that evolutionary process. But then if we look at the evolution of life in general, um, what we see is that just the you know formation of multicellularity in order to in order to do that you have to suppress cancer or at least um, you know the primordial version of cancer which is cells not inhibiting their proliferation properly cells not sharing resources with neighboring cells cells not cleaning up after themselves all of those things are sort of you know the primordial elements of multicellularity and really you know suppressing cancer is a problem that goes back to the evolution of multicellularity. And, and even earlier, even you know before multicellularity was necessarily you know about discrete organisms, but when cells started living nearby each other enough that they had to start you know, behaving a little better than they might if they were just on their own. There are lots and
3: lots of different species in the world of all sorts of different sizes. And there's this famous paradox that you expect bigger organisms, because they've got more cells, maybe they should get more cancer, particularly if they live longer, organisms should maybe get less, but that's not what we see. Tell me about the kind of patterns that we see in cancers across different species and and where humans fit in.
0: Yeah, well, you know, if we look across species, we do see this sort of general trend um, in this paper that we just recently published, looking at cancer across the tree of life, where the more complex forms of multicellularity and the species that are larger compared to much simpler species do seem to have more cancer reported, but if you actually look at, um, say, you know, within mammals or animals more generally, if if you just look at body size and cancer, um, you might expect larger organisms to get more cancer, right? Because they have more cells, but. That isn't the case. So elephants, for example, have really low rates of cancer. And one of the uh, ideas of why that might be the case is that if you have an organism that reproduces really late and has to grow really large, it's probably worth it for that organism to invest more in suppressing cancer than, say, a field mouse that, um, you know, runs about for a year and then gets picked off by a predator. For an animal that is only going to live that long and is going to, you know, start reproducing when it's a few months old, it doesn't necessarily make sense to invest in all of those cancer suppression mechanisms, especially if they come at some cost to reproduction or to wound healing or, or whatever the trade-offs might be.
3: And in terms of where humans fit into that picture, you know, we don't really live fast and die young like a field mouse. We're not as big as an elephant.
0: It, does our cancer risk kind of fit somewhere in the middle? Well, you know, modern humans do have um, higher cancer risks than we might expect. Now, um, I think there's open questions about the extent to which those are driven by environmental exposures that sort of have to do with mismatch between the environment that we evolved in and our current environment. Um, But there's some cancers for which it does seem like a pretty convincing case there, there might be some contribution that really is coming from the fact that we live in a world that's really different from the world that we evolved in.
3: We're starting to understand a lot more about cancer, about how to treat it, how it starts, looking at the genetics of cancer. It seems quite a recent advance to be bringing evolution into this mix. Why do you
0: think it's important that we do bring an evolutionary view to our studies of cancer? Yeah, well, you know, interestingly, evolution has been accepted as a theory of cancer for decades. I think recently has made a resurgence because it's become much easier to look at the evolutionary process because of um, how inexpensive it's become to look at genomics and um, to have huge data sets at our fingertips to examine some of these evolutionary questions. Arizona State University's Athena Actipis.
3: You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be tackling some revolutionary genetic ideas and meeting our magical gene of the month. So, we've heard about the importance of studying cancer from an evolutionary perspective and looking across different species, but that still leaves our original question unanswered. Why don't elephants get cancer? Josh Schiffman, a children's cancer doctor working at the University of Utah, has found out, publishing his findings last month in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and it all boils down to an important protector gene called p53.
4: Elephants, when you look at their genome... Seem to have evolved extra copies of a gene called p53. Now, p53 is known as the guardian of the genome. It's one of the most important genes in our body. It's a superhero of the genome. It actually works hard to prevent cancer. It has two main functions. One is to stop our cells from dividing so they can be fixed and all mutations repaired. And if the cell is not able to be fixed, then p53 helps coordinate the death and destruction of the cell. In fact, some of the families that we care for back in Utah have something known as Lee-Fraumeni syndrome, actually a hereditary risk for cancer based on P53 mutation. And if they don't have P53, they go on to develop cancer at very high rates, 80 to 90% lifetime risk of cancer. Many cancers at a young age multiple cancers over the course of their lifetime. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could try to figure out if the extra copies of p53 in elephants are what's protecting them from cancer? What if we could somehow get some elephant blood and compare the elephant blood to the leaf Romani blood and look to see if we can understand why don't elephants get cancer?
3: How on earth do you go about getting hold of elephant blood?
4: <laughs> Several weeks later, I was back home visiting Utah's Hogel Zoo, where they have three African elephants. I was watching the elephant show with my children when they explained during the course of this elephant display that elephants have large ears, and they have large ears because they have large veins in the back of their ears to circulate their blood and to keep them cool in the African heat. They also went on to explain that once a week at the zoo, they draw blood from these veins in the African elephant ears, and they draw the blood to make sure that the elephants are healthy and their hormones are in balance. Well, when I heard that, I said, I've got to talk to this elephant keeper. So immediately after the elephant show, I went right up, I introduced myself, I explained that I'm a pediatric oncologist, I explained about leif Romani syndrome, I explained about Peto's paradox, and I asked a question, at which point the elephant keeper said, go ahead, we love questions, please ask your question, what's your, what's your question? I said, my question is, how can I get me some of that elephant blood? Fortunately, the elephant keeper didn't call security, but rather explained that there was an ethical review process and a scientific review board at the zoo. And if I filled out all the paperwork, it was possible to get some elephant blood at the same time they were drawing it for their own reasons at the zoo. took about two and a half months of paperwork. But since that time, once a week, my clinical study coordinators, instead of drawing blood, from our patients with Lee-Fraumeni syndrome, actually go down to the zoo, which is located only 15 minutes away from our laboratory, get the blood, rush it back to the laboratory, where we've done the experiments and we think we've figured out why elephants don't get cancer.
3: So what is the answer? What have you found when you compare the cells in the elephant's blood to the cells in your patients or to to normal human cells?
4: We take that elephant blood, we take the blood from, from the patients and from healthy humans, and we bombard them with radiation to cause DNA damage. And then we look and we see how did the elephant cells respond to that DNA damage, which obviously in normal situations would lead to cancer, and how do human cells respond to that. And what we found surprised us. What we found was that the elephant cells didn't, actually stop the cells from dividing or repaired the dna damage any faster than the human cells like we were expecting but instead what we saw is that they have increased cell death the majority of all of the elephant cells underwent cell death suicide they underwent apoptosis it's as if the elephant has said over evolutionary time listen it's so important that we don't develop cancer we can't take any chances. If we stop the cell from dividing and we try to repair it, we might make a mistake and we might let a few of these mutations go on by and turn into cancer. But if we just kill the cell and get it over with, then there's no way that cell can go on and cause cancer. we elephants. We have plenty more cells where that came from. We'll just start over. And now... We're trying to figure out a way to use that information to help the children and families who develop cancer to make sure that they could live a long and healthy life.
3: So that's elephants. What do some of the other animals in the zoo maybe have Mm. inside that could help us understand human cancers?
4: Absolutely. That's that's an excellent question. One of the things that we're most excited about uh, in the lab and also when we're talking with patients is the field of comparative oncology, We're learning that all animals develop cancer, some more than others. Some are resistant, like the elephants. Whales, it turns out, are resistant. But there are other animals that are more likely to get cancer. So, for instance, dogs develop cancer at 11 times the rate of people. Now, we never give cancer to dogs in the laboratory, but once they develop their cancer, we're able to look and see what is it about the dog cancer that's similar to human cancer or pediatric cancer, so that we can see what's in common and then target those genes.
3: Josh Schiffman from the University of Utah. Every year, the Genetic Society recognises a person with an outstanding ability to communicate genetics through the JBS Haldane Lecture and Award. This year's winner is Professor Alison Willard from Oxford University, whose work focuses on the genetics of ageing using nematode worms as a model. She gave her lecture at the beginning of November at the Royal Institution, focusing on key revolutions in genetic thinking. I caught up with her afterwards to find out more about Haldane himself and her revolutionary ideas. JBS
2: Haldane was a very interesting scientist who was working in the UK in the 1930s and 40s and 50s and beyond, actually. And he was fascinated in population genetics. So he was very interested in how to relate Mendel's ideas of heredity into whole populations, and he applied maths to work that out. And he was one of the real proponents of the importance of quantitative analysis in biology. And he was also kind of quite cool, wasn't he?
3: He was very he, into debating about ideas yeah, and talking he was amazing. about them.
2: He, people say that, that J.B.S. Haldane was the, the best-read of all scientists of his age. And then people say that in order to become the best read of all scientists of his age, he only had to read his own work because he was so prolific. <laughs> he was kind of a bit of a hippie as well. I, I love reading about him. I oh, think he he was, so, he's my favourite, I think. Yeah, he's like everyone's favourite granddad. I think. You know, he was, he, was, he, was a, he was very left-wing. He was a Marxist. He was a great socialist. He believed in equality. He was a great believer in, in the welfare state. And, you know, he... He was a great believer and passionate about education at all levels and how education is a great liberator. Um, and he had just, he had weird and wacky ideas about all manner of things. He spent a lot of time in India, sort of on the hippie trail, and uh, wrote some fascinating books about, about his experiences there and, and many other things besides.
3: But moving from JBS Haldane to you, you've just delivered the JBS Haldane lecture. Tell me about what you were trying to get across in the talk today.
2: Haldane was. Very well known for his skills in public communication. And so the the Haldane lecture of the Genetic Society is a public lecture where we try to bring genetic ideas um, to a very wide audience. And my sort of take on this was to really think about genetics as revolutionary, because I think Haldane was a revolutionary. And so I wanted to have this idea of revolution in my lecture. And so I decided I would pick on what I considered to be the most important revolutions in genetics Um, I was probably a little bit ambitious because I started in 400 BC and ended up in the future Um, and that that struck me as a problem when I was desperately trying to finish this last week but nevertheless I sort of tried to pick out the most important revolution in in terms of genetic ideas that have happened sort of really starting with Mendel and and, and then and then moving on from that. You had seven revolutionary ideas Uh, tell me about some of them. Well there was Mendel's principles of heredity so Mendel sort of proposed a mechanism for heredity that was missing from Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. So that was really, really important. And then we have um, the idea of relating these hereditary principles to actual tangible things in cells, i.e. the behaviour of chromosomes and that was you know that was the third big revolution so that was that's what thomas hunt morgan was really involved in that's all the fruit fly guys the fly guys the fly guys lots of fly stuff great fly stuff and then after that became, came came the sort of molecular biology revolution so all the guys watson and crick but all the people before him that showed that dna is the hereditary material and then that came that came after him that showed how how you know how gene expression works how genes can be switched on and off there was such a lot of molecular biology that, that, that went on it was an absolute ferment in the 1940s and 1950s and into the 60s and so you know that the molecular revolution i think is massive and then the, and then after that came people understood the sort of the, the mechanism of heredity and how and how that works even at the level of molecules but they didn't understand the rest of biology, and so people started to use genetic techniques to understand other things in biology, like cell division and development, how cells end up in the right place, doing the right thing, what differentiates one cell from another, and so that was a really important thing. And then we get to the genome, the area of yeah, genomics. Yeah, absolutely. So that's very sort of, you know, late 20th century, 21st century idea that you can, that you can sequence whole genomes and then you can understand the entire genetic makeup of an organism and really drill down into what it is that that distinguishes one organism from another and what distinguishes one disease from another within an organism. And so we're in a we're in a really new era now of understanding genomes and also of beginning to manipulate them. So that's my last revolution was genome editing. This idea that we can now interfere, modify our genetic destiny and thinking about whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing or an inevitable thing whether it's a good way of eradicating disease or whether it's dangerous and might lead to designer babies and so on. So I think, you know, people need to understand the science behind those kinds of ideas if they're to contribute to the debate about whether or not it should happen in the future.
3: Alison Willard from Oxford University, this year's Genetic Society JBS Haldane lecturer. And finally, it's time for our Gene of the Month, and this time it's Merlin. Rather than being named after King Arthur's legendary wizard, MERLIN is an acronym, short for mesin esrin redixin like protein, so you can see why it's a useful nickname. Also known as neurofibromin 2, or NF2, after the name of the gene that encodes it, the MERLIN protein plays an important role in the biological scaffolding inside nerve cells, helping them to keep their shape. Faults in its gene, NF2, cause tumours in the nervous system, particularly in nerves in the ear. So it seems that just like the protecting force of its namesake, Merlin also helps to protect us against cancer. That's all for now. Next month, I'll be returning to the world of synthetic biology. If you've got any questions or feedback, do just email me, genetics at scientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll be back next time for another peek inside your genes.